Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. I've got a memoir here, but it's a unique memoir. It's mainly political and partly personal. It is Lee Zachariah's Double Disillusion, which looks at Australia's most recent federal election. So, Lee, welcome to 3CR. Thank you for having me. Now, you've drawn a curious parallel here between marriage and politics, and it's just like there's a a relationship going on, but as with um, any sort of relationship that, that falters... I watch mutual friends drift purposefully towards Team Me or Team My Wife, no matter how amicable the breakup, no matter how united a front you present, how much of a unity ticket. Friends can't help but identify the one they believe to be the wrongdoer and align themselves accordingly. <laughs> it happens in a personal relationship. It's happening on the political front. What's going on here? <laughs> oh, how long do you have? Um, <laughs> well, you've started with your... It, the, the backdrop is a personal relationship mm-hmm. that's uh, sort of unravelling, but also then you link it to a relationship with the electorate. Um, is that a viable sort of parallel? Well, it it was kind of a lightning bolt moment that when... My marriage fell apart and I was searching for answers. I kind of realised there had been all these parallels between the marriage and what had been going on in Australian politics. Not a connection most people I think would make, but uh, there, there, was a, there was a timeline that sort of I, I outline in the book that explains how closely aligned, like my fate, my fortune seemed to be tied to that of the government. And because I wrote about politics for the website Vice, I thought... Well, hang on. I've got a real stake in this. I've, I've, I've. This is where I'm going to find my answers. Uh, and so, while I was covering the election for Vice, I, I wrote a book about, yeah, the the personal and the political being intertwined. But is it a personal relationship that uh, the electorate has with? politicians i mean what are the parallels the communication the disenfranchisement or or something you know you fall in love yeah is that i i it's it's interesting because i think uh, especially in the wake of the u.s election I've, I've always seen uh you know america loves that it's cast off the shackles of of english rule that it no longer has a monarchy but it will elect a king every four years and then overthrow them like that's almost part of their culture and so so revolution is sort of ingrained in their system. However, there's not as much like there were almost no changes at the you know the House and Senate level, and we sort of have a bit of that in Australia as well, where you know we we have a we we almost treat our local members like a spouse, like give me a reason to kick you out, and will someone better come along, and. Yeah, it's sort of this this weird split focus where at the very top we want change, but the closer we get to home, we're we're kind of content to sort of, to sort of sit it out and I don't know treat it like a marriage. This well, is... you've you've thrown out the notion of a seven year itch. It's now <laughs> down in Australia three year itch, America four year itch, etc. But I mean, it's in some ways what comes across in this memoir is that it's all about managing those relationships. So you talk about or write about when you finally meet uh, Turnbull. Finally, Mm -hmm. 
It's Turnbull's turn. This is the first time I've been in a room with Turnbull since he became Prime Minister. The crowd in the room seems somewhat awestruck and do their best to take discreet selfies with him despite the fact that the average phone camera would make such a picture look like an Easter Island statue positioned beside a Lego figure. I'm actually surprised they're so excited about being in his presence. Once upon a time, being in a room with a real-life rendering of a leader you'd only ever seen in a fuzzy, colour-bled, 15-inch lo-fi television for a few minutes each day would be something to marvel at. But in the era of high-definition and 24-hour news coverage, it doesn't seem that remarkable. Up on the podium, Turnbull seems like he has less resolution than normal, which I guess is the Coalition's big problem. <laughs> but... I mean, our relationships with politicians in the digital age is sort of artificial. It's an image. I it, that's a, that's a, a tough one to answer. I think there is a very superficial relationship we have with politicians, where we, you know, we we tend to uh, elect or unelect them based on our perception of them personally the beer test the pub test would we want to sit down and have a beer with them and we could forgive what's well, it seems a lot of the time we can forgive all manner of policies if we think we like the person and i think that translates to to the visual to seeing them on television uh, i mean it's 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 an offshoot of the era of television you know uh we have constant access to them we're seeing them online all the time and uh, I don't know if, sorry, I don't know if this relates to your question or not. Go for but, your life. But it's, uh, <laughs> but, but it was that sense of seeing him in real life and, and sitting there and, and, and particularly being on the campaign trail, just thinking of all the effort I'd gone to, to, to cover him, be part of the press pack and thinking, I could watch this exact speech on television at home if I wanted. I could be in my pyjamas and I'd probably hear it better. So... <laughs> And you can you can uh, make or well, form relationships these days online, you know, sort of mm. RSVP, click on, and and such like. It's all sort of artificial. Mm. But then, in some ways, these politicians try to manage uh, their relationship with the electorate. Uh, you talk about uh, looking for Peter Dutton, <laughs> and there's an article that you wrote for Vice, mm -hmm. and there are pictures there. You've almost put up. Well, you have put up posters like a lost dog poster. You went looking for him and couldn't find him. What was going on? Well, I think they figured out that there are a number of politicians they had, even front benches, who don't have the best public image and who, you know, their, their best chance at re-election was hiding for the duration. <laughs> and uh, Peter Dutton was one of them. And I had been chasing an interview with him and I couldn't get one. And then I posed as a member of his constituency and tried to get them to uh, to let me meet him to talk about some bogus issue that I'd... And I tried everything, and then I, I went directly to his uh, campaign office, which has the most ridiculous security I've, I've ever seen in a campaign office. And they wouldn't tell me where he was, despite the fact that I later figured out he was five minutes down the road, and of course they knew where he was. So um, I was getting very worried about him, and I printed out some missing posters, and I posted <laughs> them around his electorate. I... Uh, yeah, I, I, I said, you know, if, if found, please return to, uh, to Manus Island or Christmas <laughs> Island. Because, look, he assures us they're very, very safe places, and I want him to be safe. So, uh, yeah, and then eventually he did turn up the day after the election. So I'm, I'm happy to report that he is safe and sound. But this is interesting then, because there seems to be a difference in the relationship on a national front as opposed to on at, in the lo local electorate. I mean, you talk about... Tony Abbott, for example, being 
very popular locally. Mm -hmm. It's the phrase you use. And yet nationally, um, well, they dumped him because they were worried about the sort of uh, relationship he was having with the nation. Mm. So how does a politician sort of balance those two uh, lovers, the the local (laughs) electorate and the nation? Well, it's interesting. I mean, uh, each electorate has its own whims and its own... Uh, its own demographics, its own its own preferences, and and it is very possible to be uh, popular local and unpopular nationally, or the other way around. And yeah, and there was a tremendous amount of support for Abbott in that electorate, and but there were also people who felt that they could unseat him. They were sort of looking at numbers and thinking, you know, there are there are a number of challengers who thought they had a shot. In the end, they didn't. Uh, but it, it it's the difference between I, I suspect. Local boy made good, which is how they see him. You know, he he's our he's our guy, and he's done all this. He's got such a high profile. Name recognition is a big deal. Uh, whereas the rest of the country looks at, you know, the policies he enacted and his rhetoric, and go, no, I'm not not into that. Yeah, different sort of narrative mm. for for different situations. Uh, you do, of course, mention uh, the one narrative that got onto Q and A about the six thousand dollar toaster, mm-hmm. which seems to highlight politicians sort of losing touch with the electorate. Yeah, absolutely. It's uh, I'm, I'm not sure what compelled uh, her to say the six thousand dollar toaster thing. I, I may, maybe it, it is just talking to so many small business owners about the expenses that have to be laid out for the the type of uh, of appliances you need to run a business. I mean, you know, that that's the kindest interpretation I think of that, but not sort of realising how that would come across when said nationally to a guy who's trying to live day by day. You know? Yeah, but then that sort of would seem to suggest there's a class hierarchy in many ways where you've got those on welfare trying to survive, those in small business, those with money, those on the um, political tier, how does a politician then relate to all of those levels? Well, I, th- I think particularly, uh, well, the, the Liberals, I, you know, I believe, s- still subscribe to the idea of the trickle-down yeah. economics. And so what I suspect, the, the argument that I think they were trying to make was the easier we make things for businesses, the more jobs will be available and that will benefit you. And I, I, I think that's when you've sort of got when you got that top-down view, you kind of... I, I suspect they can say six thousand dollar toaster. Businesses will, may, you know, do better, and everyone will implicitly understand that that will benefit them down the line. That is what I think they're going for. Um, I don't think it works, but well, it did. But it did work. They got reelected. So who am I to judge? Well, just yes. got reelected, which would seem to suggest there's a dissonance there, mm. division. I mean, um, the backdrop. A lot of the backdrop. Uh, that goes on in here is the uh, American election that hasn't happened and there's been talking relationships, one hell of a divorce taking place there uh, and the the divvying up. So are we seeing that sort of breakdown ultimately in a relationship uh, where we don't trust or the electorate doesn't trust its politicians or the system? Yeah, no, I I think that is absolutely true. I mean... You know, Obama's election was, he was the change candidate. Trump was the change candidate. Uh, you know, they're, they're so different in really every important respect. And yet uh, the 
the, I mean, every, everyone's got their own theory. Uh, there, there are endless, and there's a cacophony of theories out there about what it all means and why they voted for him and all that. But I mean, ultimately, you can't deny that you know Trump represented a change, and there are people who were hurting who, who did not like what was happening, did not want to elect someone who had been in the system for so long. Uh, and so there is, and, and you know, every four years you, they get to express their anger, anger en masse, and that's the one time they have a voice. But is the electorate getting angrier these days? It, I guess it depends on what's happening with the economy, or if the economy's doing well, uh, then you blame everything on refugees and keep people angry. <laughs> Sorry. Can <laughs> no, we edit that? No, no, no need to edit, uh, not on 3CR, and... and uh, you know, sort of opinions of, of that kind, because I agree. I mean, in in some ways, they've been victimised, or they're a convenient scapegoat mm. for worries and ailments that are going on. But it, it also then gets down to the language politicians use. I mean, you start mentioning uh, the language, the three word phrases, this mm. reductive view of policy. I mean. If politicians can't talk to the electorate, I mean, uh, love you, dear, is that enough in a relationship? As in, what's going on? But by the way, when I do run for office, three-word slogan will be my three-word slogan. I'm just going to put it up on a big poster. Uh, the I look, it, it's it's a tough line to walk because you can't you de- do need something you can stick up on a banner. You need something that people can remember and go because you know most people aren't so deeply engaged with the policies that they can remember, you know, who stands for what, who does what. Uh, So you do need a a short slogan that will represent that. And you can't put a complex, nuanced argument on a poster and hope people will remember it when... So I I, I do have a lot of sympathy for the need to boil down complex policy to something that people can stick on the back of their car. However, it is... It is reductive. It is starting to overtake. When 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 Tony Abbott just keeps saying "stop the boats" over and over in response to every question, that's when we know we're in trouble. He, he ended up just saying "no, no, no," a three-word phrase, but all the same word. But also, then, how much is the media uh, responsible for the language being used and what they're reporting? Well, that's. I mean, the media is made up of so many different uh, different elements that it's. I think. Oh God. How do, how do I get into this? Uh, it's, it's a matter of how we're going to get out of it because we've got about 30 seconds left, I'm afraid. It's, uh, look, yeah, the media do, does have a responsibility to get this stuff right. And, and I do worry that uh, as, it's, as it's being diminished, as the media, as we're subscribing to fewer newspapers and paying less attention and just focusing on Twitter and Facebook, we're probably not doing media any favours. The book is Double Disillusion. The author, Lee Zachariah, and it's an Echo Publishing release. So, Lee, thank you very much for coming in today. Thank you so much. We're just going to change everything and go into romance. Another and, and relationship. Historical. Another relationship. We've got a... a ro- no, so you know what? We're going to keep, cont- <laughs> keep on talking, talking. politics. We're going to keep... Interesting. What happened there, Janet? Didn't, oh, know, it's it's the digital age. <laughs> How, I mean... Politics in the digital age. Mm. We've got a problem here mm. because are we really hearing what the electorate uh, or is the electorate hearing what they need to hear? There are a lot of very interesting articles going on on at the moment uh, floating around that have, uh, uh, you know, Facebook shows you 
the people that you agree with. They show you articles you're going to agree with. We're now separating into our bubbles. This great new egalitarian medium that was supposed to bring information back to the people is actually separating us more through algorithms, and we're not seeing what the other side is saying. Uh, There is also a a piece out today that I only glimpsed at which said that uh, fake news stories, by which I mean The Onion, The Batuta Advocate, are getting shared more than real news stories. Well, this argument came up in the American election, mm. uh, what Facebook was releasing or what had, you know, the algorithm algorithms that released certain news. When I go online, you can see ads coming up for mm. things that I've been searching. Yeah. And so it knows me in a way that's really creepy. So mm. are politicians taking advantage of this as well? I suspect they would be. I mean, all the media companies they're hiring would definitely be taking advantage of that. Uh, it, it does worry me that... I mean, I, look, I'm, I'm not entirely convinced that the bubbles that social media is creating are different to the bubbles we have lived in all of our lives. Uh, we tend to surround ourselves with people who agree with us. And social media is just the extension of that. So I'm not convinced that this is sort of social media has completely changed the conversation. Uh, But I do think that the the more media, the less centralised media has become, uh, the, the harder it is to hear all sides of an angle, to hear... Yeah, you know, there. Sorry, you go. No, no, no. Well, what I was thinking there, I mean, this collective notion of a nation is really all of a sudden starting to fragment because if we divide into our little interest groups, what's uniting us? What's binding mm. us together? And are the politicians capable of bringing us together? I think, I think on paper, the idea that you know there was a time not that long ago where there were maybe four newscasts every evening at 6pm, and the country was watching one of them. And they'd all say the same thing, probably in the same order. Yes. And so I think if you looked at that on paper and said in a few years there are going to be hundreds upon hundreds of of places to, to get your news, there are going to be endless sources, you're going to be able to find the places you agree with and focus on those, and you're going to be able to to see endless opinions, that would... I think on paper that sounds better. I think in practice we've lost something. Uh, I I think there is an argument for the centralisation of news. I don't think we can put the toothpaste back in the tube, but... Uh, that's the reason the relationship <laughs> failed. <laughs> One of them didn't put the cap back on the toothpaste. There you go. Now sorry. you know. No, no, I, I didn't mention in the book, but you figured it out. That's right. I'm sorry. <laughs> but... Then how does your memoir serve in this discussion of what's going on politically? Because really, it's a reflection. It's an extended reflection, mm. which in some ways is uncommon. It is. And I, I wanted to give that sort of diary aspect because, you know, aside from the fact that I was going through something, you know, quite upsetting, and hmm. uh, I, there was also... So it was definitely a journey and I wanted people to know what it was like to to sort of be on the... I mean, I, it's a road trip book. Ultimately, it's a road trip book. I drove 11,000 kilometres in two months. Um, I, you know, and, and that's... You know, for me, it's a, it's, a, it's a book in a lot of ways about discovering Australia as we're in the midst of an election. 
And I wanted to see what that looked like on the ground physically. What did Discovering Australia look like? And it's a diverse electorate. It's mm. not just the news flash for the nation. Mm. Each electorate is different. I mean, going into Indy, for example, and seeing what's on the ground in Wangaratta mm. and then, you know, driving across the country to get other voices. Um, it would have sort of sent you half mad. In some ways, uh, a little bit. I look to be honest. I found the driving very therapeutic. It was uh, it was a good thing to go through after sort of just walking around London for three months, which is where I was, you know, when when the marriage ended. Um, I sort of moved to London for a few months, and then uh, and then realised I had to come back. And I think driving and really reconnecting with my home country was. That was a big part of it. But there are so many voices in this country. Mm. I mean, the difficulty then of, of capturing all of those is the same difficulty politicians would have mm. in uniting the country. Which is where the three-word slogans come into it. <laughs> if you, you want to capture very different types of people, then you need something very, very simple. But it's also an exhausting exercise because if you look at uh, one of these chapters, it's sort of a stream of consciousness. I'm back on the road again and I'd known the date was coming up, but it was only on Monday that I realised how close it was. When June clicked over into the 20s, I realised that the 22nd was looming over the horizon and I spent two days in a panic as I roamed Adelaide and interviewed politicians and the only thing I was grateful for was the fact that I'd inadvertently scheduled a 10-hour drive for the day and I could read on because it's all one sentence. Mm. Exhaustion? Uh, that, that chapter in particular. <laughs> well, the exhaustive nature of what you undertook driving around the country yeah. and getting that perspective, but also perhaps an emotional exhaustion as well. Well, that I mean, that day was my third wedding anniversary and I was just trying to outrun it. <laughs> I was trying to, you know, I thought if I can keep driving, then it won't catch up to me. Uh, so, and I, and I wanted to capture that in that chapter and... I think I, you know, I wrote, I was sort of writing that in my head and as I was driving and it, and I wanted to capture that sort of endless, don't stop, stream of consciousness, no time for full stops, just keep on moving, uh, mood that I was in that day and, um, and yeah, so I did. Well, yeah, a, a, a road trip, but in, in some ways, yeah, how much of Australia is a road trip then? Uh, how difficult is it for politicians to bring the country together, or are they trying to outrun the electorate catching up with who they truly are? Well, that's a, that's a big question. <laughs> uh, I think there is something to be said for driving across Australia that, you know, when you go from, let's say, Melbourne to Brisbane, when you take that three-hour flight, it's very, very different to if you drive that uh, because you see all the, the connective tissue. And you see how Victoria flows into New South Wales, flows into Queensland. And you kind of, there's a continuity there that you don't get if you're just doing the major stops. And it's, it's a very difficult concept to get across. And it's one I tried to convey because I think it's, it's very important if you want to understand the country you live in or the country you're trying to lead. You kind of need to do that. But do the politicians actually... Uh, have that capacity. I mean, they are hopping mm. from centre to centre. Mm. They don't drive across. No, and and to be honest, like the day I drove from Canberra to Adelaide, and you know that was that was fourteen hours. I don't think they have that kind of time. Well, they don't have that time kind of time, but it means they don't have that kind of perspective. Yep, and that's yeah. I think that is. I mean, there are many many different ways in which I think 
politicians need to gain perspective that they don't have or at least don't convey that they have. They, there might be things that they believe that for various political reasons they can't express. But this is this is one that I think is important because, you know, I, I was driving through heavily, uh, say heavily uh, national, uh, uh, what do you call them, electorates. Hmm. And then I'd end up in a very, very heavily green electorate. And and even though it's not like the, the, the actual landscape you're driving through to get to, from one to the other, there are no p- specific answers in that. But if you stop and talk to people and if you stop and meet the people, then you sort of start to see that flow and how the, these places bleed into each other. But there are also some very eccentric people that you mentioned yes, in the are. book with very eccentric ideas. Would you like to tell us a few of them? Well, God, there's one in particular. Uh, <laughs> and I think I think this is who you're alluding to. There was one uh, lovely lady, a, a liberal volunteer in, uh, in uh, where was it, Parramatta, who uh, just started volunteering all of these opinions on eugenics and which races were smarter than which other races and why she's hoping Donald Trump wins. And lovely woman but uh but her views were uh and she kind of knew that they were controversial views but and was sort of apologetic for them but not really but like, we've got politicians like that as well we do we do have a few of those which is a bit of a worry yeah so you know we're getting these fragmented uh political ideas uh, or a frag- fragmented voices within the electorate, mm-hmm. but they're also then being represented by fragmentary or not, not a cohesive, um, I mean, one nation. Mm. And, and it, it's a disparate group of, of erratic voices in mm. some ways. Is that how politics is going to go? I hope not. Um, I, I, it, it, is, it is a concern, this, um, this lurch to... I don't want to say extremists, but there are or eccentric. Let's say eccentric. Views. Yeah. But if if in the digital age age groups can get together mm. around a particular viewpoint mm-hmm. and coalesce around their own sort of voice that's reaffirming their particular mm-hmm. unique idea, yeah. then there's a fragmentation rather than a cohesion of people coming together. Well. Yes and no. I mean, when when I you know when I was a kid, the internet was great because it meant I could find other people who liked weird science fiction TV shows. Uh, I, I didn't quite think that through and realize that oh, and now now all the uh, racists are going to get together and figure out that they have like minded friends as well across the country. I guess that's a double edged sword, um, and and maybe that's maybe that's play played a big part. I mean, we're seeing. You know, with the U.S. election, we're seeing a lot of voices emboldened that could have afforded not to be emboldened. But I think that's generated a lot of fear mm. in America. Yep. So I've got friends who say they can't leave their apartment right now because they're terrified, or at least for the days following the election, they were just like, "I can't." But that's not good for a country. It's to defi- be definitely not good for a country. How prone is Australia to that sort of thing happening? I think we've got a system set up that helps curb uh, a Trump uh, figure coming in. It's, it's, it's good that we have that and, and I think it sort of insulates us a little bit. But we can still, I think the, the problem is, is maybe a little more sinister is that we can have the extreme one nation 
people coming in. And I've got a question. Go, Go for it. The story, of course, that Lee's written is called Double Dissolution, and I get the play of words because it was the marriage as well as the government. Yep. But um, all of those, the acts of parliament that caused the double dis- dissolution are coming back. Mm. So what well, They haven't think? been decided on, yeah. Yeah, they're coming back into parliament. Yep. So what do you think, Lee? I, <laughs> I don't know. I mean... Those issues in particular, that was not what the election was fought on. It was like that was the excuse for the election and then we never heard from it. We never heard any, you know, nothing about the these issues throughout the campaign. Um, so it was, I don't think the actual triggers were that important in the end. Mm-hmm. And But we've got so many issues like that that um, are sort of ideological but not necessarily... Uh, going to help the country. I mean, the the uh, plebiscite mm. on uh, marriage equality, it's a sort of non-event because the issue's already been decided. People can live together. It's not uh, against mm. the law. Mm. Why do we need a political decision being made about it? We're, we're sort of bound by this political infighting or clash that's not resolving anything. And that um, that whole argument isn't the electorate trying to figure out what it is we want, what type of society we want. It's really not about that. It's about factions within the Liberal Party trying to wrestle for power. And we're all kind of sitting back being subjected to, you know, Turnbull trying to appease the right wing of his party so he can hold on to power. But have the electorates lost power in terms of shouldn't it be the voice of the people rather than the voice of politicians? Well, the, the politician we elect the politicians. Yeah, it's a bit of a worry. Well, look, Lee, we can actually draw the <laughs> interview to a conclusion finally for the second time. Um, Thanks for having me again. <laughs> not, not a worry. Good to have you back. Du- well, double. Why not have a double? Exactly. A double disillusion, heartbreak and chaos on the campaign trail. Lee Zachariah. And as I said, Echo Publishing. Thank you, Lee. Thanks and thank you, Lee. And Cheers. thank you, David. Thank you, Jan. See you next week. Next week.